Will you please take your Bibles and open them with me to Mark chapter number 16. Mark 16. Um, for the past 18 months, we have been walking through Mark, seeing the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen Jesus teach and do some incredible things, haven't we? And now we must take up the last 12 verses of this book which if you were here last week, you heard me say, were most likely not written by Mark. And today I want to take some time to sort of unpack what that means <laughs> and to consider how these verses apply to our lives today. So follow along with me in Mark 16, beginning at verse number 9. Now when he arose... Early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things... He appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany, your version may say, follow those who believe in my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. <laughs> and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. I promise you the sign out there says we're Baptist. Verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the reading of your word. It is true, every bit of it. Father, we ask you to come now in the person of your spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the triune God, the Holy Spirit, and take these words and help us to understand them. They're, they're different than 
things that we're used to hearing. Help us, Lord, to navigate rightly through this passage for the good of your people and for the glory of your Son. We ask it in his name. Amen. If, if you received a lengthy letter from someone that you, you know very well, perhaps a spouse or um, husband, wife, or maybe one of your children or even a best friend, but someone else wrote the last two paragraphs, would you be able to tell the difference? Would you be able to recognize a different author in the letters of your loved ones? Probably so. Handwriting aside, let's, let's say the letter was typed. Handwriting aside, if you know them well enough, you will most likely be able to tell what they wrote and what they did not write. Well, friends, that, that really is what we see happening here at the end of the Gospel of Mark. If you read Mark closely and carefully, by the time you get to verses 9 through 20 of chapter 16, you're probably beginning to start, you're, you're thinking something is a little off here at the end of this chapter, at the end of the book. And you don't have to be able to read Greek to figure that out. The vocabulary, the style, the content, everything about these verses that we read, 9 through 20, they, they just don't read like the rest of Mark. And if you have a modern Bible, like a, a New King James Version or a New American Standard, NIV, ESV, those are okay. Those are good Bibles. These verses will either be in brackets or they will have some sort of footnote attached to them that says that, that, that these verses are not in the oldest copies of Mark. We call these manuscripts. The English Standard Version, which is what we read this morning, simply inserts the note, quote, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20, end quote. Now, there are well-meaning Christians who dismiss this suggestion that these verses are not authentic to Mark. They'll say, well, it's just liberal scholars trying to take verses out of the Bible. But friends, if there were verses that scholars were trying to take out of the Bible, there would be better ones than these. And I don't think that's the case at all with what's happening here with 9 through 20 of Mark 16. On your way out this morning at the glass table uh, near the, the, the doors, there will be a handout that you can take. I think we have 25 of them printed. Um, take one per family. Uh, the, the source of give, you know, it gives a little, a little more in detail uh, an explanation as to why we, we think that these verses in particular are not really authentic to Mark. So with that said, let me say this, that the presence of difficult or questionable verses in the Bible should not shake our conviction one bit 
that every word of God is true. God has providentially superintended not only the composition of his word through human authors, but the preservation of his word over the centuries. And friends, the Bible that you hold in your lap today, you can believe, you can take it to the bank, it is the living word of God. It is true. It is from the Lord. It has been tested and tried for centuries. And regardless of whatever skeptical claims you might find on Professor Google or Dr. YouTube, whatever they, whatever they say, the Bible has proven itself to be true over and over and over. Long after their videos have been deleted, <laughs> this book will still be printed every in every language, in every nation. Right? So don't believe what the internet says. Just about, don't believe them about anything, except maybe the weather. And even two-thirds of the time, they don't get that right. But we have... A book in our hands and our laps that didn't just fall to heaven from us, for us, right? It, it, it came to us through human authorship, and we have things to study and discover. And 9 through 20 of Mark 16 is one of the more problematic sections of Scripture that is in the Bible. Now, if you have a King James Version... It reads just like everything else. There's no note, probably. There's no brackets. There's nothing. But again, if you read Mark from start to finish carefully, and you, by the time you get to verse 9 of chapter 16, you think, well, this is, this is sort of all out of left field for Mark. Why is that? That's what we want to answer this morning. And I want to do three things with these very unique verses in this chapter. The closing chapter of Mark, the closing chapter of, of, of my ministry here. I want to alert us, number one, to the likelihood that Mark did not write them. His authorship almost certainly ends at verse 8. I said that last week. And if Mark did not write them, we don't really know who did. That's okay. Most likely they were added by a scribe who would copy in the text. Nevertheless, these verses have received widespread acceptance throughout church history. And so we should continue to consider them today just like the church throughout history has considered them as part of Scripture. Secondly, I want, I want to point out that the context of these ver- the content of these verses is really essentially a summary of the post-resurrection material that shows up in the other three Gospels. You have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what we find here at the end of Mark is a summary of the, the endings of those other Gospels 
and the activity of the apostles in the book of Acts. So that means that whoever wrote these verses had access to all four Gospels and the book of Acts. It is, it is generally considered, thought, that uh, these verses were added to the end of Mark early in the second century. So if Jesus died in, let's say, 30 A.D., Mark was likely written in the mid-50s A.D., John wrote Revelation in the mid-90s A.D., probably 95 to 96 A.D., and so these verses here were added to Mark at some point just on the other side of the turn of the century. And they were in wide circulation within a few decades. The Gospel of Mark itself, as I said, excluding these verses, was was written in the mid-50s, one of the earliest books of the New Testament, by the way. Third, I want to consider what these verses teach and how they should be applied to our lives. Because I know you've read, you know, we read these texts and, and you immediately thought, well, what, what's all this talk about taking up snakes and drinking poison? We need to talk about it. And so that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing this morning, working through this passage, trying to figure out how do these verses apply to our lives as part of God's Word. With the inclusion of verses 9 through 20, the Gospel of Mark ends with the risen Jesus appearing to his disciples and then commissioning them to go into all the world and preach the Gospel. That's how it ends. Verse 9 finds Mary Magdalene, one of the women that Jesus appeared to in John chapter 20, She's reporting the good news of his resurrection to the disciples, but there's a problem, isn't there? They don't believe her. Any of you husbands ever, your wife's ever come in and saying something sort of fanciful, and, and like, I don't, I, don't, I don't believe it. That, is that true? Is that only true of me? Um, I guess. They didn't believe her. Now think about that for a moment. They did not believe what Mary said about Jesus being risen from the dead. Look at verse number 9, Mark 16. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. That's a key phrase. Verse 11, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared, he being Jesus, appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. In verse 14, finally, Jesus comes. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. They were eating. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So the first thing then that we find here in this passage 
is that Jesus rebukes our unbelief. Notice the phrase in verse 10, as they mourned and wept. You know what it's like in the following days after a loved one dies. Well, this is, this is the disciples. They mourned and they wept. They were experiencing deep sorrow and grief. Their leader, their teacher, their master, their savior had just been crucified. Brutally crucified. And all their hopes of a restored kingdom in Israel were gone. Judas, the betrayer, was dead by suicide. Peter, the denier, was reeling from his denials of the Lord, and the disciples were in total shambles. You want to talk about a dysfunctional family. So when Mary comes with the news of resurrection, here's what Luke says. Luke 24, verse 11. He says that her words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So even when the risen Jesus appeared to to some of them in what verse 12 calls another form, and they go back and tell the others, they still would not believe. These were men who saw Jesus do spectacular things. You know the historical accounts of the New Testament. He walked on water. He calmed the storm. You remember in Mark, Mark, when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee, the storms come in, they said, Master, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus is asleep. He's asleep in the boat. He wakes up and he says, where is your faith? Where is your belief? And he calms the storm. They saw him heal the sick. They saw him cast demons. A legion. You remember Mark 5, out of the man from the Gadarenes. They saw him raise the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. They heard his teaching. They experienced his ministry. Yet the thought that he could actually be risen, just as he said, seemed impossible to believe. It was just, as Luke says, an idle tale. This fairy tale. Wishful thinking. J.C. Ryle, he says this. He was, a, he was an Anglican bishop, long, long dead. Never was there so remarkable a proof of a man's forgetfulness of plain teaching. These 11 men had been told repeatedly by our Lord that he would rise again, and yet when the time came, all was forgotten, and they were found unbelieving. You see, the problem is that the disciples had allowed their grief to lead them to unbelief instead of faith. 
And friends, we need to see this same tendency in our own hearts today. When bad things happen, when people that we love die, when providence takes a very dark turn in our lives and grief begins to overwhelm us, we must be aware of the danger of letting our sorrow lead us into unbelief. How many times have we heard stories of professing Christians who have lost their faith because they couldn't reconcile why God would let something bad happen to them or to someone they love? You see, this is the unbelieving tendency of the human heart. It's in all of us. If you don't think it can happen to you, let something bad enough happen to you. And you start to question, God, where are you at? Do you care? That's the disciples. They were with the incarnate Son of God for close to three years. He told them, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to be crucified, delivered into the hands of the wicked, evil men. They're going to kill me, but I'm coming back. I'll meet you in Galilee, but they could not get past their grief. You see, grief can either drive us to Christ in faith or it can drive us away from Christ in unbelief. And while these disciples here, these 11 that were left, had the benefit of personally seeing and experiencing the risen Lord because of their place in redemptive history, We do not have that privilege. That's why Jesus told Thomas, who insisted on touching the scars in his hands and in his side, in John 20, verse 29, Jesus says, Have you believed, Thomas, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and me, friends. So don't let grief pull you away from Jesus. No matter what happens in your life, do not let grief drive you away from Christ. The power of His resurrection can dispel the darkness that hovers over our souls. Just like it did with the disciples here once they finally believed. They were brand new men, restored by grace. They were ready to go to work for the cause of Christ. And Jesus does just that. He sends them to work. And so we see, secondly, in this passage then, that Jesus commissions us to go. After He rebukes our unbelief, He commissions us to go. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is what we call in biblical studies, theology, whatever, we call it the Great Commission. It is the foundation of all evangelism, missions, and outreach with the singular purpose of taking the gospel of Jesus to all the world to make disciples. Now, let's just pause for a moment. When you fast forward to the book of Acts, chapter number 1, Jesus is sending them out. He says, 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He'll make you witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, and the other uttermost parts of the earth. We've got that reversed in our day, right? So in America, somehow we think that's the new Jerusalem. And then the, the gospel mission has to go out from here. Friends, the United States of America is the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel originated in Israel. And Jesus sent them out. We need mission work here in this country. And believe it or not, there are nations that are sending missionaries here. We need the gospel preached to us afresh in this country, like never before, in fact. Every Christian should be involved in some way in spreading the gospel. If we would spread the gospel, you know what? If we would get serious about spreading the gospel as we were about not spreading COVID, this, this country would, would turn around real quick. It could be talking to a friend about their need for Christ over coffee. You could be passing out gospel tracts. I know a brother here in town who goes to the Acme and hands out gospel tracts. Amen to that. It could be having a gospel conversation with somebody at Septemberfest. It could be doing foreign mission work. It could be doing local mission work. Friends, just tell somebody about Jesus. Why don't you start with your children at home, your grandchildren at home? What if the disciples had decided to be like many of us today and just stayed at home and kept the gospel private? never actually went into all the world. If they had done that, friends, we would not be sitting in this building today. So I want to ask all of us, including myself, when was the last time that we mentioned, even mentioned the name of Jesus to an unbeliever? When was the last time we actually told an unbeliever that they were dead in their sin? And we're going to stand before a holy God one day and give an account for their lives and that the only hope, the only remedy for their situation was a man who lived in history, he died in history, he was raised in history, his name is Jesus Christ, he is the only hope. When was the last time we've shared that simple good news? The stakes are high, aren't they? Verse 16 says that whoever believes, that's sort of a John 3.16 kind of flavor, isn't it? Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. 
But whoever does not believe will be what? Condemned. We don't want to talk about that in today's culture. The idea that God would consign anybody to eternal condemnation in hell is offensive, unheard of. It's Nevertheless, the Bible still affirms this reality for unbelievers. And we sit around and watch Netflix, or in my case, I'm kind of hooked on Paramount Plus right now. I'm, 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 I'm confessing. I'm, I watch Star Trek. That's the only place you can get it anymore. But what of my family members who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ or who think that they're earning their own way to heaven? Have I taken the time to share this truth with them or am I just watching Star Trek? We need to look to share the gospel often. It's not always easy, is it? Sometimes we're going to be rejected. But actually, I would dare say that most of the time we are. I mean, look what happened to Jesus. <laughs> look what happened to the apostles, to the early church. All of them, except for John, were martyred. It doesn't matter if they reject you. Just keep planting seed. Keep tossing seed out. So everything in these verses, these extra verses, this bonus chapter, this final, you know, goodbye here in Mark 16, it's all been pretty standard so far, hasn't it? It's about gospel, it's about resurrection, about belief, preaching the gospel, sharing the the gospel, the commission, but that's about to change. It's about to change. Look at verse number 17. It's going to be a little unusual. These signs will accompany, they will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So this is where the longer, this is is called the longer ending of Mark. This is where the longer ending of Mark sort of gives itself away as distinctly non-Markan, right? In other words, not written by Mark. In fact, none of the Gospels end with anything like this in verses 17 and 18. What we see here is the influence of the book of Acts upon the writer of these verses, the speaking in, in tongues, the, the taking up serpents, laying hands on the sick, that all comes from the ministry of the, of the apostles in the book of Acts, straight out of Acts. The reference to drinking poison, completely disconnected from anything else in the New Testament. You won't find it anywhere else. No doubt you've all heard about the snake handling churches in rural Appalachia. 
think there's even been television shows made about them and their strange beliefs. Well, this is where they think that the Bible sanctions their bizarre practices. But the obvious meaning, my my seven-year-old could read this and not come away thinking, Daddy, should I go and pick up a snake? Right? The obvious meaning is that the apostles, in a distinct period of redemptive history, were protected by God from accidental exposure to, let's, you know, let's say, poison or to venomous snakes. They were not protected as an intentional test of faith. You know, that's what they do down there in, in excuse me, Kentucky. That's where my wife's from. Actually, I think I saw, I think the TV show was based out of Tennessee. East Tennessee. They, they, they take up these rattlesnakes, these venomous vipers. They get bit, and then if they have enough faith, they won't die. But yet they continue to die and be, you know, mangled and disformed and everything else. But God promised protection for his apostles because they're going into a dangerous world preaching the gospel. They were not intentionally holding rattlesnakes in a shed in the back of the church, bringing them out on Sunday morning. That's obvious, right? There's no need to even spend any more time talking about it. Acts 28 records an occasion on the island of Malta off the southern coast of Italy where the apostle Paul, he, he was bitten by a viper while he was trying to make a fire. You know, these snakes, they hide places. They, he, they, they, uh, Luke says that the, the snake latched onto his arm, his hand, and Paul just shook it off into the fire. He was unharmed. So obviously, again, the writer is clearly drawing from the record, the historical record in the book of Acts. This is not Mark writing this. He's dead at this point. And so now this non-Markan part of Mark ends with verses 19 and 20. So then the Lord Jesus after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Friends, don't miss the significance of that phrase. I'm not going to talk about it this morning, but Jesus is at the right hand of God. That is redemptively significant because he's there for us. Verse 20, And they went out, Look at this. I love it. And preached everywhere. At the Acme. At the Starbucks. At the local church. On the street corner. You know, we, we give those guys on the street a lot of, a lot of flack. Well, they're just out there, you know, with their signs. No, let those guys do it. You know, I mean, if they're preaching the gospel, right? There's, some, there's a lot of crazy stuff happening on street corners in every city. But there are some faithful preachers out there doing what Jesus told them to do. They preached everywhere. Verse 20 says, While the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. All that stuff in 
17 and 18 about snakes falling off your arm and drinking poison, laying hands on the sick, working miracles, all that. That's, that's the accompanying signs. But we need to consider this because despite what some today believe, especially among our Pentecostal and our charismatic brothers and sisters, there really is no reason for us to think that God has promised us signs and wonders like this. That's why people who get bit by snakes die now, right? This was a particular period in redemptive history, and the changeover from Old Covenant to New Covenant was marked by a distinctive work of the Holy Spirit that Luke records in the book of Acts. And we just, friends, we just cannot do the same things that Jesus or the apostles did. I don't care what the guy on television tells you. We, we cannot do those things. They raised people from the dead. Peter, in the book of Acts, his shadow healed somebody. They would lay him in the streets of Jerusalem so that when Peter walked by, this is the same one who denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. So when Peter walked by, his shadow would just fall upon the sick laying in the street and they would get up and walk. They were... They were transported from one location to another in an instant. And every bit of this was indisputable. It was the confirmation of the words with signs following, right? So friends, don't, please don't believe those who claim. They're going to sound real spiritual and they're going to look at me while you're just you know, quenching the spirit and all that stuff. No. Now, we're rightly dividing the word of truth is what we're doing. They're going to sound spiritual, but they will tell you that we can do those things today. We cannot. God can do the miraculous anytime he wants to. He can break in history and do a spectacular miracle anytime he wants to, and he still does. But we don't live under a blanket promise of signs and wonders following the proclamation of the gospel. We don't. But that's really another sermon altogether. And I think I'm all out of sermons here at Park Bible Baptist Church. The Lord, in His wise providence, has brought our time together to an end. And I simply want to leave you as the gospel writers left their readers even this very unusual section in Mark, I want to leave you with four words. Go preach Jesus Christ. Just preach Jesus. He lived for our righteousness that we could never earn for ourselves. He lived to earn it. He died for our sins. He was raised for our justification and now He has ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for our perseverance. So church, just keep 
preaching Jesus. Believe on Him. Trust in Him every single day of your life. When you feel like it, when you don't feel like it, trust in Jesus. Keep loving one another. Keep being patient with one another. Keep forgiving one another. Be the church that God has called you to be. A great commission church. That's what you are. I, I, I thank you for allowing this pastor, as flawed as I am, to preach the matchless grace of Jesus Christ to you every Sunday. You all hold a very, very special and dear place in my heart. We're going to close a little bit differently today. Melanie is going to come and she's going to sing a song that she sang a few weeks ago, actually, called Commission, which really sums up the call that Jesus has put on the lives of every single person who believes on Him. And then we're going to stand together and sing, O Church, Arise. Let's pray.